Amen. Well, good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Full? I am feeling the effects of way too much food this weekend. And I have a feeling I'm not done. Um, join me in uh, turning to your Bibles, Romans 11. We are finishing up uh, Romans 11. We are coming to the close of an incredible section of Scripture. And uh, we're going to get to that in a second. I, uh, I love Thanksgiving. Anybody else with me? I, it is, I think, by far my favorite holiday. And there is nothing spiritual about this for me. This, this is really about the food. It's, um, it centers around what we're eating, and uh, I think about it a lot. <laughs> uh, we had a great Thanksgiving this year, as we always do, and uh, my kids yesterday let me in on a secret that apparently, I don't know if it was a secret to anyone else other than me, and uh, so my oldest three kids, particularly the older two uh, yesterday, were explaining to me with great joy and laughter the noises that I make when I eat. <laughs> so apparently I subconsciously enjoy food so much that when I eat the food, I must exclaim joy with different sounds, like, mmm, oh, uh, mm. So... To their incredible annoyance, and, and I had no idea, and I looked to my sweet, sweet oldest daughter, as she laughed at me and mocked me, and I said, is this true? Is this true? I actually make noises when I eat. And she said, yes, Dad, I fear what life is like for you when we're not there to make fun of you. Like, <clears throat> when you're at work or with friends, I fear that this happens as well. You're making noises. Um, I had no idea. But in my enjoyment of food, I guess things just come out of me. Uh, this, this is a, a very minimal explanation or illustration for what we see happen in this passage. And so I want you to read it with me, and then I want to talk about this incredible moment of transition that we're going to have in the book of Romans. Let's read it together. Romans 11, verses 33 through 36. Romans 11, 33 through 36. Paul exclaims, oh... The depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So we see this incredible transition point. We're coming to the end of a, a incredible section of scripture. We're coming to the end of Paul's uh, argument that has been running from Romans 1 all the way through Romans 11, and really in particular Romans 8 through 11. He's making a particular argument. This is the pinnacle of Paul's 
really magnum opus. This is his great work. This is Paul's uh, incredible laying out in the most detailed, incredible way, the gospel of Jesus Christ from Romans 1 to 11. And, And as we talk through this brick by brick and piece by piece and passage by passage. Um, There's so much depth to it. There's so much to get into. But one of the difficulties of preaching week to week as we come back every week to more of a chunk of Romans is sometimes we lose the flow of thought. And and so one of the things that, that is important, I think, maybe for some of you as you study this together and as you study this on your own is to read it all at once to read Romans 8 through 11 and the thrust of this argument that Paul's making all at once. But really what we've seen is from Romans 1 through 11 is really his magnum opus. This is his great work. This is his laying out of the gospel. And the transition that's happening in the book of Romans right now is we're getting from Romans 1 through 11 really this incredible theological work. And it's transitioning from theology into something more practical. It's transitioning in chapters 12 to the end through into application. But Romans 1 through 11 is this incredible work of theology. It's an incredible laying out of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the most amazing letter, in the most amazing way. In particular, we, we saw uh, Paul's argument about justification by faith. We, saw, we see Paul's laying out of sanctification by the assistance of the Holy Spirit. We see Paul talking about adoption. We see Paul talking about, in, in chapters 8 through 11, really predestination and election. As he describes to us behind the scenes, where God reveals to us God's work in salvation before the foundations of the world and what God has been doing since the beginning. We're getting insights into how everything happens, the cause and the effect as Paul lays out the gospel. And so after this incredible work of theology, this incredible revealing to us through the word of God, insights into who God is and how he works, Paul now comes to from theology to doxology, which is worship. Amen? Paul, after laying out And pulling together all the strands of his incredible arguments as he lays out the gospel. And in particular through chapters 8 and 11, he answers these questions and gives us insight into predestination and election and God's work and salvation. He comes to a conclusion of his argument and he exclaims after contemplating and searching and and writing all of these incredible things. He has this guttural worship response of, oh... You see, as it's written in the passage here, that word O oh, is, is really a response to what he has just laid out and written. That word O oh, is, a, is a deep, inside, guttural O. Oh. He exclaims as if he can't help it, as if it's unconscious. He just exclaims after contemplating such amazing things. He exclaims, oh, the depths. Oh, the depths. What do we see here as Paul responds in these last few verses of chapter 11? What we see here is really, to quote Steve Lawson, high theology produces in us high doxology, worship. 
the more we contemplate the gospel of Jesus Christ, the work of God, the- theological discussion within the confines of Scripture of who He is and what He's done, the more we respond with what? Oh, the depths. Worship. We worship Him for who He is. To me, just that point alone. Oh, the depths. Paul's response. Might it be mine? Might my, as we sung this morning and as Mike prayed in our confession this morning, might my response uh, to, the, to the reality of who God is be a, a response of worship? That my affections would be drawn to him for who he is and what he's done and how he's revealed himself to be as opposed to my affections be so easily drawn to so many other things that are really just amount to a counterfeit. Oh, the depths. You know, one of the things we, we really attempt to do here at Renovation Church is to spend some time in our musical worship when we worship God through song, worshiping with songs that articulate and cause us to say things in our singing that exclaim the scriptures and the reality of who God is. Does that make sense? Because singing the scriptures and singing about who God has revealed himself to be really is what produces in us that response and that joy of worship is that is illuminated to our hearts as God reveals it to us. Amen? You know, I've, I've seen some worship songs throughout the years. And, and they, sometimes you get to the end of them and realize, I've actually said nothing. The band rocked, the lights were dimmed, some cool smoke machines maybe, and everybody was like this, but we actually said nothing. That means anything to anybody. Uh, MacArthur is a high critic of some, some worship songs that I actually like, but he, 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 he actually made an incredible statement in reference to worship. He said, Sing that song, but turn the lights on, and just have a guitar and see if, it, see if it's as exciting. Now, I have no problem with dim lights and cool music, but the words are what produces in us worship. What we're actually saying is what matters. What we're exclaiming about who God is to him and for him as we glorify him in worship is really what matters. It's not about really just dimming the lights and rocking the music and getting excited. Amen? So we see a response of doxology. We see a response of worship from Paul as he comes to the end of this incredible section. He says, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable or past understanding are his ways. John Calvin said it this way in reference to verse 33. Whenever there we enter on a discourse respecting the eternal counsels of God. Let a bridle be 
be always set on our thoughts and tongue, so that after having spoken soberly and within the limits of God's word, our reasoning may at last end in admiration. See, what we see here in verse 33 is, uh, is an ex- exclamation of worship in the, in the depths of God, and it's also kind of a hand of, of correction to those who would, um, in their humanity, feel as though they're capable of understanding so much. There is a bridle to it. There is a restraining in this passage to human ignorance, to human haughtiness. As Paul reaches out and has laid out this incredible work on the gospel of Jesus Christ, and as he's argued through chapters 8 through 11 in predestination and election and the work of salvation, he exclaims, oh, the depths. He exclaims, how deep are God's ways? And then he brings this, this hand of correction and restraint to someone who would think they know it all, someone who would think they get it. And he would say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Wait a minute. It is so deep. It is beyond reaching those depths for us. It is so unsearchable. His riches and his wisdom and his knowledge, his judgments are unsearchable. Lest you think God be unfair, as he argued earlier. Well, how could God do this? How could God choose? How could God uh, make judgments? How could God work in the way that, that Paul has just described through these chapters? He's working, and he's saying, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Oh, the depths. How unsearchable are his judgments. You human being, you mortal, do not have the brain. You don't have the reference. You don't have the capacity to understand why God would be making particular judgments one way or the other. How unsearchable are his judgments. This is really the greatest doxology in scripture. As Paul is singing here a worship song to God. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. It's, 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 he doesn't say the heights. He could have said the heights and it would have been true. But, but he declares the depths of it where you can't get deep enough. It's, it's foundational. It's underneath. And, and it's something we can't, we can't get to the bottom of it. We can't seek it out enough. And, and I love the, the caution here that Calvin in his, in his commentary on Romans gives. It's, it's after we've searched and after we've, after we've sought out to understand the wisdom and the knowledge and the judgments of God, we do so within the confines of Scripture. As God has decided to reveal his mysteries to us in his word, that's where we look for it. And then after we get to the end of that, we say, oh, the depths. It's unsearchable. You see in Corinthians 13 where we see but dimly and, and, some, and, and someday when we're before him, we'll see really what that means is more accurately. And even in heaven as we, as we are, are in the presence of God as laid out in 1 Corinthians 13, we're, we're not going to still understand the depths. We will spend an eternity searching out and learning about who God is because as created beings, we'll never fully grasp the creator. Really, in 1 Corinthians 13, we, we see now dimly, and, and when we come face to face, we'll see accurately. We'll see accurately, but not completely. 
everything of who God is and what he does and how he works. Because we're created and he is the creator. Amen? What a powerful God we worship. So we see here the depths. I want to continue this quote because I can't improve upon it from Calvin's commentary. And he writes, he still continues his exclamation. And thus the more he elevates the height of the divine mystery, the more he deters us from the curiosity of investigating it. Let us learn to make no searchings respecting the Lord except as far as he has revealed himself in the scriptures. For for otherwise, we shall enter a labyrinth from which the retreat is not easy. It must, however, be noticed that he speaks not here of all God's mysteries, but of those which are hid with God himself and ought to be only admired and adored by us. How many of us ever, have ever been in that place in reference to what Paul's been writing in, in Romans 8 through 11, where we get caught in the labyrinth of argument and discussion and debate? It's been going on since the foundations of the world. How does God decide? Who chooses? I choose. You choose. God choose. And, and, and understanding God's work in salvation as it's revealed in Scripture and then just getting caught in, in, in this perpetual labyrinth of discovery where, where, where we see Paul come to an end of this argument, and he says, listen, this is what God's revealed to us, and beyond that, oh, the depths, his ways are unsearchable, his, his knowledge is unscrutable, it's, it's beyond understanding, let's worship him for who he is, amen? That's the place that Paul brings us to. Really, this, this whole passage is a doxology, this whole passage is a worship song in response to the gospel of Jesus Christ as written in the chapters before. Amen? So we see in verse 33 that God has infinite wisdom and knowledge. God's wisdom is, is unsearchable. His, his knowledge is infinite. Not only does he know everything in terms of knowledge, but he knows how to make knowledge effective. He knows what to do with knowledge, which is wisdom. Knowledge is what you know. Wisdom is knowing what to do with what you know. And God's knowledge and his wisdom is is unsearchable. It's beyond knowing, inscrutable. It's so far beyond us. We serve a God who understands so much more. His, his, His wisdom and his knowledge is so greater. It's infinite. What we also see in verse 33 is that, that he has nothing but his own. No one has given him anything. Does that make sense? Everything God has is in and of himself his own. No one has given him anything. God hasn't looked through the caverns of time and learned anything from us. We have not taught him anything. We have not brought anything to the table. Everything God knows in his knowledge and his wisdom is eternal, and it's, and it's solely in him, and, and it hasn't been contributed to. Does that make sense? He is ultimate knowledge. He is ultimate wisdom. We have not brought anything to the table with our, with our lives or our decisions or our works have brought nothing to the table. Everything he, he knows in his wisdom and in his knowledge is, is self-contained. It's, it's, it's within him. It has not been contributed to. 
You see it ultimately laid out in verse 36, that, that from him and through him and to him are all things, and we really could spend an entire week just on verse 36. The significance of those three prepositional statements, from him, through him, and to him are all things. Who knows the mind of the Lord? Verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Here in this part of Paul's worship, he begins to extend his hand to restrain the audacity of men. Oh, the depths. His knowledge, his wisdom is unsearchable. His ways are inscrutable. And who's known the mind of the Lord? He restrains the audacity of men. Who's been his counselor? Who of you have given counsel to him? Who's given him a gift that he would need to be repaid? And as Paul illustrates who he is and how great he is, and he extends this hand of restraint to the audacity of mortals, to the audacity of human beings, he says a couple of things. You know, lest you should clamor, lest you should debate, lest you should argue against God's judgments. Paul Paul exclaims to all mortals, too blind to understand God's view of predestination and salvation by their own understanding. The idea that we would reason on a thing unknown like that is, is really presumptuous and absurd. Not only can we, number one, not reason and understand it, number two, we have no cause for complaint. As we contemplate God's judgments, as we contemplate God's ways, as we contemplate who he is, we really have no complaint. We have no basis for any complaint against God since no mortal at all can boast that God is a debtor to him. Amen? Who's paid God anything that he owes anybody anything back? You see, in Paul's worship here, he's assuming as he's laid out in chapters 8 through 11, a proper view of God's work and salvation and predestination and election. And he lays out and he says, listen, you haven't done this. God did it. You didn't make this happen. Your will didn't determine this. God ordained it. And that God isn't a debtor to anybody. There's nothing you've done that now you can look back at him and say, hey, I did that thing, so you owe me salvation. That is not how it works. It's not, I did this, so now you owe me this. I said these words, I made this prayer, I did this thing, so now you owe me salvation. You are in debt to me because I've given something to you. Paul says, no. No one's paid God a thing. God is the cause. Amen? God is the cause. He's not a debtor to anybody. John Edwards, in his book, uh, Freedom of the Will, lays out an essay for what the will actually is. 
what it is to have a will. What does it even mean? What does our will do? And one of the things he exclaims in debating what the other view of the will would be in his day is he says, if you believe that your will is determinative of your salvation, then you, he, he argues, don't even believe in God. Because you would state that you had an effect without a cause. God is the cause. You can't have an effect without a cause. And if you believe that you were the cause or your effect didn't have a cause, then your, your whole uh, apologetic goes away in terms of the existence of God. God is the cause. God is behind it all. God knows what happened in the future, not because he looked into the future and saw what we did. God knows what happened in the future because he ordained it in his sovereign will, because he's God. And Paul says, he declares, he's not a debtor to anybody. No one's given him anything that he owes them something. He doesn't owe anybody anything. We all are in sin. We all are deserving of judgment. And he gives mercy. Not because he owes it. Because he loves us. And in his will, he decides. Amen? So we have no cause for complaint against God. No mortal can boast that God's a debtor to him. What's amazing is that we have this illumination that comes from God, that God in his sovereignty and in his love allows us to begin to grasp these things and to hear his word and to have some sort of understanding of who he is. We receive faith and examine the secrets of God because of the illumination of the Spirit of God as God moves in our hearts. We can't, by our own faculties, examine the secrets of God. But, but you know, the, the Word of God says it's, it's, a, it's, it's a mystery. It's hidden from those who, who don't have the work of God, the activity of the Spirit in their life. But as God illuminates through His Spirit, we begin to contemplate, we begin to receive and understand some of the secrets and the mysteries of God. And we begin to, we begin to understand a little bit of who He is and what He does and how He does it. And that's even a gift of God. And so we stop and we, in this passage, we fix our standing and we take a moment after hearing about the works of God as they're laid out in Romans to seek more. to understand and to stop as we've received what he's revealed to us in scripture and worship. Really to seek more than what God has revealed would be overwhelming. We'd be overwhelmed with the immeasurable brightness and inaccessible light of who he is. We're incapable as as mortals of, of knowing that, but what he's revealed to us. The whole, the whole doctrine of Scripture is, is beyond us. It surpasses the height of the mind of man. It goes beyond, as I've said before, what our two and a half cups of electric gray and pink putty between our ears can grasp. Our brain does not have the capability to, to grasp beyond what God has revealed. Yet access to it's not closed against the faithful 
who reverently and soberly follow the Spirit of God as our guide as we read the Scriptures. Amen? What a gracious and wonderful God who allows us to know Him. He allows us to know Him. Think about that for a moment. God doesn't remain hidden from us. God could have, as as many theists have believed throughout history, could have created and set the world in motion and taken off and and hidden from us and, and not revealed himself to us. But we see through the scriptures that God has invaded humanity and he has revealed to us who he is. We're gonna we're gonna talk about it over the holidays through Christmas as we talk about the incarnation. But but beyond the incarnation, the word that became flesh. We have also the word of Christ as God has revealed himself to us. Amen? God lets us know who he is. He's entered into our darkness and our dimness and our sinfulness, and he has made himself known, and he has illuminated to us realities of who he is. Why? Why would he do that? Why do we get to know who he is? So that we would respond with what? Worship. That we would exclaim upon hearing and understanding the word of God, that we would in turn exclaim and say, oh, the depths, oh, the depths, and worship him, not just as we sing here on Sundays, but with our lives. There is a response to this. Who's taught him? Who's his counselor? Of course, that's a rhetorical question. No one. He is the cause. He is under no obligation to anyone. It's not our power, as we see in this passage, to constrain God by our good works to bestow salvation upon us. He does it out of his own mercy and his own grace. Then we see in verse 36, really this incredible doxology. Read this with me. You don't have to read it out loud, but just read it with me as you look at it. Verse 36, Paul concludes with this. And for him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. What an amazing exclamation that Paul makes. For him and through him and to him. I'm sorry, for from him and through him and to him are all things. What an amazing statement. Three prepositions that have incredible significance. All things are from him. What does that even mean? God's the source of everything. God is the creator of everything. God is the source of all things. Through him, God is the means by which all things are carried out. And to him, God is the goal of all things. Amen? Think about this with me for a moment in the context of creation. He's the creator. He, 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 from him is all things. He holds the planets in his hands. 
The sun is the correct distance from the earth so that we don't get burned up or we're not too cold because he holds that in his hands. The earth spins on its axis at the perfect rate, at the perfect uh, centimeter because he holds all things in his hands. All things are from him. He's created all things. The earth's on its axis. The sun is in its place. Gravity, thermodynamics, the realities of of microbiology, every detail. As you look into the cell of every single train track of a cell that arrives, millions and billions of them at exactly the right time. It all arrives at the right time so that we are who we are because the creator created us and he holds all things in his hands. Everything is from him. Amen? is the God we worship. From him are all things. He is the creator. I have this thing that is a pet peeve. I will walk around my house, right, and realize as I look around my kitchen, the plates, the food, the forks, the drinks, the cups, I bought it all, right? And so... Sometimes my kids will be eating, right, or hanging out, and I'll reach over and grab a chip and dip it in salsa off one of my kids' plates, and they'll look at me and be like, it's mine, right? (laughs) And the thought occurs to me, there's nothing you have that I didn't buy. (laughs) It's actually not yours. It's all mine. I could take this plate of food and eat the whole thing and you got to go get another one. And the fact that you get to go get another one is because I bought it, right? On such a more grander scale, how could we make any charge or complain against the creator? How could we look up and say, why did you make me this way? Why am I in this situation? Why, 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 Why is life going? Why, why am I having such a hard time? What we realize is, is every moment of our lives, every, every, every instance of everything that we experience is the great creator painting a beautiful painting of creation and his entire plans on this universe that are so far beyond us. Does that make sense? And we look to a God who loves us and we can trust him. You can say in the midst of subjective difficulty or even objective pain, you can look to God and say, God, I don't understand, but I stand firm on your word that I know this. You do. You understand. And you know what's going on. I was lost in the labyrinth of YouTube the other day. Anybody do that? Video, and then, oh, look at that next one. And then, oh, hey, look at that next one. And you can just YouTube and all of a sudden you look up and it's dark out. Oh my gosh. What the <laughs> but I stumbled across a, a particular person from my childhood who I loved. It's the curly-haired painter dude. Does anybody remember this guy? Oh. I love him. And there was full episodes of the curly-haired painter dude on YouTube. And so I, click, I clicked on one and he's like making happy little trees. And have, You remember this guy? Oh, look at that happy little tree over there. But one of the things that you recognize about watching an artist like him is he's making brush strokes and they make zero sense. Right? Like, what is he doing? What is he, that doesn't make sense there. And he's going so fast. He's making happy little things and, and he's hitting brush strokes. And, and at first, I can't see what he's making. 
It doesn't make any sense. It's beyond me. But in the mind of the artist, in the mind of the painter, he knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly why he's doing it. And he knows exactly why he's putting that stroke right there. And at the end, you see this incredible landscape with a river and rocks and mountains and trees and birds. And it's absolutely beautiful, right? God's ways are beyond us. You don't understand. I don't understand every brush stroke in my life. And we could ask the question, why God? Why did you let that happen? Why God? Why, why did this happen? Why did this? Why did you do this? Why did you allow this? And sometimes in our arrogance and in our audacity, we lift our fist and we shake it at God. We say, God, how could you do this to me? And we forget the reality of who he is and who we are and that God is a loving, sovereign God who knows exactly what he's doing. His ways are beyond our ways. His wisdom, his knowledge, the depth of it is too deep for us to get to. But we can stand on Romans 8. We can stand on on all these passages where we know that those who love him and are called according to his purpose, that he is working it for good. And to his, what? Glory. The end of all of this, God's glorified. From him, he's the creator. Through him, folks, through him, he in the present time, everything is through him. All things are through him. They're from him and they're through him, meaning that, that providence and history is all written by God. He is the painter. He knows what he's doing. And to him, everything we do is to him. To glorify God should be the main goal of every Christian, amen? Amen. The main thrust of the life, the trajectory of the life of every believer who knows him should be to glorify him. If you're someone who's in pursuit of knowledge and God grants you the ability to gain knowledge, you should sing all the sweeter as you get to know things and the reality of what God has created and what God's done. If God has blessed you with wealth and God has blessed you with success, it should be to what? The glory of God. And all the more, you should glorify God with what God has blessed you. If he's blessed you with the job that you've always wanted, that job is for what? To the glory of God, that he would be glorified in your work and what you do. He's blessed you with family. He's blessed you with a spouse. He's blessed you with children. It is what? To the glory of God. God loves us and he blesses us for what? His glory. Amen? All things are from him. All things are through him. He's the artist painting the picture. And all things are to him. Everything we do is worship to him to glorify him. Amen? Our goal is to make his name great. So what do we see at the close of chapter 11? High theology. Theology just means the study of God. High theology produces high doxology. Pursue knowing God as he's revealed himself in the scriptures. And you will see produced in you a desire to worship that God. Amen? That's why we do this every week. Why does the church gather? To draw seekers? Why does the church gather? Does the church gather to entertain? 
the church gather together every week, every Sunday on the Lord's Day to do anything other than to come together and worship God. That's why we come here. That's why we don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. That's why we gather on the Lord's Day, every Lord's Day, in this place, so that we can dive into the scriptures of who God is and who he's revealed himself to be and respond with worship. Why do we call ourselves to worship? Why do we confess our sins? Why do we read from the word of God his assurance of pardon? Why do we come to the Lord's table? Because we illustrate through the word of God, through the preaching, through the singing, through the speaking, through the praying of the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ and who he is so that our hearts would sing and our affections would be drawn to worship the only thing worth living for and worshiping. God. We could spend all week pursuing Amazon and stuff and things and work and success and golf and whatever else it is, but what we really are created to do is what we do here every week, and that's worship God for who he is. Amen. Let's make this the pursuit of our everyday, this doxology, to worship a God whose depths, who's unsearchable, who's inscrutable, who's so far beyond us, but who has revealed to us his gospel and his word. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for who you are, that you would even let us in on who you are, that we could know you, and that we could in turn worship you. As you're glorified in our worship, you still Give to us because we take such joy in doing what we were created to do. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for revealing what you do reveal to us. And help us to in turn worship you with everything we have. In Jesus' name, everybody said. Amen. Amen.